On this episode of DLN Extend, we focus on the parts of the Linux desktop that we usually don't talk about. This episode of DLN Extend is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. Welcome to episode 44 of DLN Extend. DLN Extend is a community-powered podcast. We take conversations from the DLN community from places like the Discourse Forms, Telegram Group, Discord Server, and more. Plus, we snag topics from around the network and give you our takes. With me this week are my two fantastic host-hosts, Matt, the gamer extraordinaire, and Nate, the open Seuss powerhouse. How are you guys? Fantastic. I'm doing good. Yay, we're all back together again. It's been a crazy few weeks. So what have you been up to, Nate? I've been doing a little bit more with Microsoft Teams again, you know, for work reasons. Something that spurred on the desire to dig into it again is I've been using the Snap quite happily, but there was one little issue I had with it, and it's that any kind of MS Teams links that I would click on wouldn't actually properly execute on the Snap version of Teams. So I tried the RPM again, but there's no video or audio, and I was kind of frustrated. I saw this article on Foss Adventures, another OpenSUSE user who writes about it. Nice, real nice website. He was using Teams quite happily in OpenSUSE. So I thought I'd try the RPM again. You got to have the camera and the microphone in order to do the conferencing thing. And so I started digging. I was going through all kinds of forum posts, reading through these numerous threads on this problem. And I found the solution that seems to work. Uh, you have to add the user to the video and pulse groups on the user management. And doing that, you know, rebooting, restarting, whatever, seems to have fixed that problem that I've had with Teams, the RPM. So now I can click on, on the MS Teams links and they'll actually open up in the application properly and I can do video conferencing. It's really pretty fantastic. And so after hours and hours of reading and digging, I have the solution. So I wrote about it on my, on my website, keepgoodlate.com. And if anyone else has that problem, they can hopefully search and find it. Yes, I'm happy. I got the solution, but I still have the snap as a backup just in case, you know, things get a little wonky with the RPM. We're good. So uh, it's been going on here in my in my little Linux world. It's frustrating when there's an app you need to use for production type stuff and it's just not working, but it feels so good when you get it figured out. Yeah, it's kind of like an endorphin release, you could say. Yes. When I have an issue like that, I have a very hard time sleeping because it's the only thing that I can think about. I become so hyper-focused on this problem <laughs> that I can't figure out how to get solved that until I solve it, I don't sleep good. It's the only thing I think about. And you have like these nightmares about computers chasing you and the mouse kind of slapping at you, you know, <laughs> trying, trying to strangle you. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. I understand. I totally get it. Well, I've never had that dream. If I ever have a dream where my computer is chasing me, it might be time to take the computer out of my room. And whipping you with the mouse. <laughs> that would not be good. You have a very violent computer. That went dark real quick. <laughs> <laughs> So Matt, what have you been up to? I don't know where to take it from there. So I guess instead of having bad dreams, I actually yeah was in reality, I guess, at this point. <laughs> I ended up switching distros again. And this time I actually landed on Ubuntu Unity. This isn't a slag on GNOME. It's just not for me. <laughs> I tried to make it work. I really did. <laughs> but you tried the, all the extensions? And just wasn't happening. Even with all the extensions I did to try to make GNOME usable to me, it, there's just certain things about it that irked me. What was the final thing that made you say, okay, that's it. I have to switch to something else. Honestly, I was having a constant Wi-Fi drop issue. Don't know why, like the Wi-Fi was trying to go into power save mode. It would just do it constantly. I had just gotten so tired of 
I'm already what, two, three months that I've been on Pop! OS. Like I've been trying to make GNOME work. There's things, obviously there's things I like about things I don't. The experience overall, it's, I can use it, but it's not like the most enjoyable thing. It's kind of like a Linux user or a Mac user going back to Windows. They can do stuff. It's just not enjoyable or pleasant to use kind of deal. Right. That's how I view GNOME. Yeah, I get it. Even with customizations and all that stuff. So the Wi-Fi issue was really, really annoying. Last week, Nate, on the off recording, you had mentioned about having to maybe restart Network Manager and that kind of stuff. So I tried it. There was a specific way. I had to IP config some stuff. Then I had to IF config some stuff. That worked, sort of, but then you restart it and it don't work no more. Then you had to restart Network Manager after those uh, power up, power down kind of deals. It just didn't stick. So I was like, okay, screw it. Like, I'm tired of this. Like, I would be downloading updates. My device would just not show up in the Wi-Fi connection anymore at all. Just like, oh, doesn't crap. exist. Three months of this is like, I was hoping maybe it was an update or something. I'm just like, I'm over it. I did those exact same changes to Ubuntu Unity because I have still having the same issue. So it's an Ubuntu issue specifically. Once I did it, I can put the thing to sleep, close the lid, open it up. It goes right back to where it's supposed to. <laughs> So I don't know if it's a GNOME thing. I don't I don't know what it is specifically. It might be just this machine, but it works now. And that's all I care about. The only thing that I really, really miss is like the on the fly kind of GPU switching that you can do within Pop! OS. I'm not sure if there's a Unity way to do it. I haven't quite found that. It's been a while since I've actually landed on Unity since it became a zombie DE. Overall, I used Unity for like seven years or six and a half years before they killed it. It feels like Unity. Sometimes it takes exploring and sometimes coming back home and seeing like, oh, there's things I actually liked here. There are definitely things that I found that I still like. It's weird being back on an Ubuntu base on an everyday kind of deal though. Well, you were on an Ubuntu base, but Pop! OS really changes things up a lot in the way that they do things. And Unity is definitely very unique in its structure as well. Yeah, you know, you have like the pop shop. The way Pop! OS does things is GNOME, but it's GNOME with a flair. This is some 76 theming. There's just different elements that make it kind of its own thing. It's kind of like how what Ubuntu does with general GNOME now. Unity just feels like a better DE. <laughs> like, I don't know why. Could be from familiarity. Nostalgia, maybe? It's not even really nostalgic. There are things that I notice on it that do kind of irk me. If you go to the all applications and I look at the OBS icon, it is literally bigger than every other single icon <laughs> that is in the menu. So there's things on it that are like, okay, it's starting to show its age. I still find it as a functional desktop, no, nonetheless. Do you know how Unity handled high DPI? Seeing how I'm only using 1080 on a 15-inch screen, I can't oh, really yeah. tell you, but <laughs> I had it on a 1080p Surface Pro 2. That was a 10.6-inch screen, so you had to do some scaling. The fractional scaling on Unity actually works. That's good to know. That's one of the things that I heard a lot after Unity died, because Unity died not too long into my entrance into Linux itself. But there was a lot of people who complained about Unity and this and that. And it was probably because Ubuntu was doing it. And then after Unity died, all I heard was crying and sadness about how, oh, I loved this thing and I loved that thing. And it was like, holy crap, guys, maybe if you'd said all of this stuff before, it wouldn't have gone away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome to the Linux community sometimes. <laughs> 
We can be a finicky bunch. We we can be. Resetting up my system has pretty much been, um, this particular machine has been what I've been doing for the last couple of days. Wendy, what have you been up to seeing how you weren't able to be with us last recording? It has been an absolute crazy, crazy week. We are back to homeschool co-op. The kids are really excited to be back. New classes going on, all of that fun stuff. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to make it last week. We had a pet pass and one that needed to see the vet. All kinds of craziness with that. The little laptop that I got here a few weeks ago, that's the two-in-one, we started to get it put through its paces on the school stuff. Last time I talked to you guys, there was a fresh install of Manjaro Plasma on it, and we really hadn't had a chance to use it too much yet. My daughter, my oldest daughter, absolutely loves this thing. Now, Are the specs in it great? No, they're really not. But it is so lightweight and compact. It's really easy for her to pack around. She's done all kind of research on this, paper writing on it so far. Absolutely loves the size of this little thing. And I have to say, I'm really impressed overall with how well it's holding up and how well it's doing with four gigs of RAM, right? I mean, they're not running any major programs on it. They do use a lot of web browser-based applications in doing the research. One of the math games the kids like to play are web browser based. And it seems to be running really good so far. I'm quite impressed with this little HP laptop. I haven't had time with the craziness of last week to really look into the pen portion of it, but that is something I really want to do. Here is kind of a, a shout out to the community. I don't want to do too much looking into a pen if I can't use it really well on Linux. So if you know of a note-taking application that uses that touch input that is made for Linux or works on Linux, please share it with me. I would love to be testing some of those out, seeing what they look like, showing them to my daughter because she'll be the one who is using this the most and would be using it for the note-taking. So I'm really curious to if there are some good ones available on the Linux platform. I believe, if I remember correct, what's the name? Zernal, X O U R N A L, is a like a pen input app that is available on Linux. Journal with an X. Yes. Why do they name things so funny? It is pretty funny, isn't it? Welcome to Linux. <laughs> I actually just found it on their GitHub page and that kind of thing. So this might be what we're looking for. Cool. And it's probably in your AUR, just going to say. Yeah, it probably is. I don't have that laptop fired up at this very moment, but I will get it pulled up. We have some other not so fine touch pens that can be used to do some basic testing on it before I invest in one that's more made for that type of application. I love the fine point on the Samsung tablet and it really makes it different in writing as though it were a real pen. So if she's using it day to day for note taking, I'd want it to have a finer point on it. So there is no excuse for her handwriting, whether it's on digital paper or on real paper to be bad. As long as her typing isn't sloppy, that's important. Yes. No sloppy typing. No Comic Sans for you. I think that's one of the things my daughter loves is that I'm also a collector of fonts. And I I don't know. I think I've got somewhere around 2,000 fonts right now. That is an awesome obsession to have. Yes. (laughs) So when she's working on different 
projects. She loves to wood burn too. And that's one of the things that our mass variety of fonts is good for that kind of creative style work so she can find just the right font. And then I have a subscription to a website where you can get different graphics or fonts, that kind of stuff. I told her I've got credits or whatever that I can use each month. And I said, hey, if you can't find a font that you want in the whatever thousands of fonts I already own, you're welcome to go use a credit and pull up whatever font you need for the project you're working on. So she definitely helps increase the number of fonts that I have installed on my system at any given day. Yeah, I have a collection of fonts as well. I move it from system to system. I have a bunch of Star Trek fonts, of course. And I have a bunch of old style computer fonts, like they're kind of blocky, some different styles. Oh, yes. From the Amstrad and the Commodore 64 and, and stuff like that. I think they're just fun fonts to have. Not that you, I mean, you're not going to type a paper in them. You know what? Actually, that would be kind of fun that I think about that. Totally fun <laughs> to turn in a paper with those kind of fonts. Yeah, not that I'm doing any papers right now, but like my oldest, he's doing papers. I think it'd be fun just to switch the font on it. Amstrad CPC font, just because. This episode of DLN Extended is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. DigitalOcean recently announced new features and services such as a virtual private cloud in all regions, free of charge. This lets you create multiple private networks to isolate your workloads. Container Registries is now available to all users. Easily store and manage private container images and push images seamlessly to DigitalOcean's Kubernetes. You can get all of this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. Get started on DigitalOcean for free with $100 credit by going to do.co slash dln and you can use that $100 credit for spinning up over a dozen droplets or even some monster-sized droplets for two months. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. Fonts are amazingly awesome to have. And one of the very underappreciated fonts that you can get for your Linux desktop is Open Dyslexic. I absolutely love this font being a dyslexic myself. It really makes the letter very clear as to what it is. Of course, it's open source, so you can get this and install it on any system. Matt, what's something else you find in the Linux desktop world that's also not appreciated enough or given enough love? Well, ironically enough, you mentioned fonts, and that is one of the areas I think that is so underappreciated as it relates to the Linux desktop. One of my favorites is actually the Ubuntu font, something that I didn't mention last week when we talked about one of Ubuntu's contributions. I think it is hands down the best open font available on desktop Linux. It has a very solid, smooth, it scales well. There's just something to it. You know where it comes from if you like have used Ubuntu before. And it doesn't matter if you're using it in like an Arch distro or a Solus or whatever. You know that it's an Ubuntu thing. That's kind of telling about how good it really is. And I think it's something that's really, really underappreciated because like for me, everything, every font that I have on a Linux system gets changed to Ubuntu white. Because I just prefer the spacing and everything else just works better for me. As a general font, I think it's one of the best, hands down. I can't say that I've uh, looked at the Ubuntu font and like had this kind of uh, same reaction. It hasn't done anything for me like that. What I can say about fonts is just how easy it is to manage fonts in Linux. Probably different from distribution to distribution, but what I appreciate is in Plasma, how I can just import all my fonts. Bam, there they are. I don't have to mess around with it. I don't have to find the folder. I don't have to, you know, sometimes I have repeats or whatever because, you know, I'm, 
I don't always, I'm a little bit of a hoarder when it comes to certain things. Like fonts, I have a bunch of them. I'm not like Wendy level of hoarding. I have collected them over the years, the fonts that I like the most. And if it's already in the system, it already knows to just, you know, have the one or whatever and, and care of it for me. So offsets my own sloppiness and sorting out my fonts. But there are things I do enjoy a lot about Linux that I think that get missed a lot besides the fonts and font management. I think that what we often forget that is really quite awesome about Linux is the time it takes to set up a new system. I don't know how often anyone has set up a Windows system necessarily, but if you set one up, the time it takes to go from zero to the full-on Windows system from scratch, obviously if you have an image, that changes things substantially. No system at all to a fully functional system with all the drivers and everything ready to go in Linux is a very, very short time period. I don't mean the customizations and all the additional software you may want, but just a functional, usable system, vanilla system. We have it so good in Linux, no matter the distribution you set up, that you don't think about that. We really do take that for granted. I think mean, it's good for a Linux user to go and install some other operating system. Just remember how good we do have it. Yeah, you're definitely right. When I had to go through your initial Windows setup process in order to update the BIOS on this little laptop, oh my goodness, that took forever. And I know part of the reason why it takes so so long is the updates and stuff that are installed in that initial process before you even get to the desktop. And I have to say that is one thing I love about the installation of Linux is on some distributions, you can choose to, yeah, go ahead and install the updates or whatever as we are going through this install process. You can say, hey, no, I don't want to and do it later. It all depends on what you need to do initially getting this system set up. It was incredibly dramatic the time difference between just going through the initial, not even installing it from scratch, just going through the initial setup process to get to the desktop in Windows and then going from straight install all the way to seeing the desktop for the first time on Manjaro. Dramatically different in times. I really wish now that we're talking about it that I would have timed it because the difference between the two was quite dramatic. You could install it again just for fun. No. No. <laughs> no. Not on a four gig machine with a four core Atom processor. Why do you want to torture Wendy? <laughs> he wants to know for science. And this one, I am not taking one for the team. You're right. The amount of time that it takes to actually install a Linux system in comparison to Windows. Now, I will be fair that Windows, when you actually download like a, I'm not saying if you have the like DVD version, but if you download the actual ISO from their website, they do do a better job about keeping it up to date, unlike, you know, Windows or seven or eight or whatever. In fairness to Microsoft on that, it, it is much better than it used to be, but it is still atrocious, especially on a clean install. There's still, you know, the optional updates and the cumulative updates and all the other nonsense that goes with it. Nate, this would probably be more accurate for you. You don't have to go start on Windows XP Service Pack 1, then go to Service Pack 3. <laughs> Wait, now what does that have to do with Nate? Because that's probably the last time you actually remember using Windows. <laughs> Not true, but I accept it. Not true, but... Close enough to true, I'll take it. I nuked and paved an entire machine. Just getting to the desktop was like 10 minutes on an NVMe drive. <laughs> like it did take long. It was probably another 10 minutes to install apps. That was pretty much it. While I'm waiting for apps, I changed a few customization stuff and that was it. <laughs> Machines up and running. It's not as nearly as hard as it was 20 years ago where here's your 52 floppies and 
have fun. I'm glad we are past that in the desktop install world. Not that it was necessarily a horrible process to do, but I was always so worried that there was going to be an issue with a disk in swapping them, and then you're in trouble, you're stuck. I never actually experienced installing an operating system on x86 hardware until CD-ROMs. Before that, I used DOS, and then I didn't use Windows because I used Amiga or the Commodore 64. So I actually missed all that fun of the multiple floppy installs. Can't say I want to live it. I don't need to experience it. Well, and even just installing from multiple CD drives, you run into that issue. I know we had, what, it was an old, old version of, I think it was Corel software. And in order to install the whole thing, and I can't even remember what it was, one of the graphics ones, but it had multiple disks in order to install this application. If something goes wrong with one of those disks, when you put it in, sometimes you push the disk back out, put it back in, and then it'll read it. But if you've got a major scratch in that disk, you can't finish installing the program. You're done. Yeah, you're done. Just like playing a game on the Wii U when your kids decided to scratch Mario Maker, that thing is done. Oh no. Now that I'm saying that that happened. One of the best games on the Wii U too. <laughs> I'm not saying it happened. I'm not saying it happened. I'm not, I'm not blaming you're, anybody. You're also not saying it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. I'm not confirming or denying anything as far as scratches on media goes in my house or any complaints or anything I might have said after it happened. I mean, if it did happen, I'm not. Yes. <laughs> it's just yes. Yes. While shaking your head. No. So one of the other things I think that doesn't get a lot of attention and this kind of ties into a couple episodes ago where we talked GUI versus CLI, a lot of the software stores, centers, call them whatever you want. Some of the ones that I think of the work that elementary is doing on the kind of like the universal app store that they're working on for Linux. Discovery, you have GNOME software, the Pop Shop, the Ubuntu Snap stuff. One that I don't think gets a lot of love is actually AppGrid, which is Ubuntu specific. It's a different take on an app store. Uh, you know, Manjaro, you have Pomac, which is probably easily one of my favorite favorite software centers not gonna lie i could say that i love it too but honestly i don't ever update or install from there even though i've been running manjaro straight now for over a year i don't use it so i have no first-hand experience in how good it actually is it's simplified it doesn't hide everything it doesn't have a lot of wasted space like you know like from a visual aspect that you know this is me being caring about ui ux kind of stuff from a visual aspect it's gtk but it doesn't waste a lot of space. So there's not a lot of white space. Like, there's a lot of white background, but there's not a lot of wasted white background. Like the spacings and stuff, they just feel right. App usage, especially for Arch-based distros, when you can go in and search apps by category. And not like synaptic type categories where they're like these weird esoteric kind of, what does this do? <laughs> like you don't know. Much more categorized, much cleaner. Curated. Not even curated. It makes a good user experience. It makes Arch accessible from a GUI, which I know is kind of a conundrum and counterproductive and all the other stuff for the Arch people that are going to make that argument. I think it's easily just one of the best GUI interfaces for, especially on Arch systems that you can use. You know, And if I'm going to use the terminal, it's probably going to be a drop down terminal anyway so at that point it doesn't really matter Wendy because then it's just a GUI still right I think the software centers and boutiques and stuff are something that's really underappreciated a lot doesn't get a lot of love because we tend to be more focused on the CLI stuff there's a lot of good stuff in those app centers I think now despite what you might think 
Matt, but I have actually recently used Windows 10. I wanted to play a media file over a Bluetooth speaker. I will say that like using Bluetooth audio on Plasma is way more straightforward and easy to do than it is in Windows. Uh, number one, connecting to a Bluetooth device just seems really clunky in Windows. Secondly, managing the different audio streams in Windows compared to Pulse Audio on Linux Pulse Audio is beautiful. Anytime you use Windows, I love Pulse Audio. I know someone's probably going to want to drag me behind a car for saying this, or a horse. That'd be more fun, I think. The How easy it is just to manage different devices and move them around and everything, like, you know, moving streams around. If you're connected to multiple audio devices, you can switch in between different streams very easily with just a little click of a radio button on Plasma. It's amazing how wonderfully intuitive that is. And I really believe that Linux does not get enough credit for how awesome the audio system is. I actually have to say that I have found some very positive things about Pulse Audio myself. So you have an audio device that you don't want to be used in anything. I've got a really nice microphone. I don't ever want the microphone on my webcam to come on. And with our audio settings, I can go in and tell it the microphone on my webcam is turned off completely, right? Nothing has access to it at all. I don't want it to be used. And then I don't have to worry about when I open a new application in the system settings with Pulse Audio. I have completely turned off that mic altogether. I've always made the joke the sound system in Linux is confused at times. It has come multiple years from where it was when Pulse was first introduced. Pulse Audio was first introduced to, to most Linux users back in, you know, 2008 when it was shipped with Ubuntu. I think it was 8.04. It was not a pleasant experience. I can be the first to tell you that. I had to rip out Pulse Audio and go back to Ulsa. That's how bad it was. I do remember that time, but not with Ubuntu. But now it has come years and years of development and much farther than I think a lot of us ever thought it would. There are things about it, you know, like if you need low latency and all the other stuff, then Pulse is not going to be the thing for you. So you're going to go use something like Jack or whatever. The thing with the Windows one is the Windows one is pretty good having one source, multiple sources. It's a burning dumpster fire. <laughs> it is indeed. What I found is, as an example, so I have a system that has Windows on it. When I plug in a capture card, my microphone that is also plugged into the system, everything is routed now into the capture card. So that means my out sound, my input sound, and all that stuff goes to the capture card instead. Oh, no. Yeah. Plug in a Blue Yeti USB mic. The sound for your headphones automatically goes to the monitor on the headphone jack on the Blue Yeti. People who say the Linux sound system is horrible. <laughs> Try using Windows with multiple inputs and whatnot. I'm looking at four different inputs and I've probably spent more time configuring those to work with Windows than I have spent making that work with Pulse Audio on pretty much every Linux distribution I've used. It has come a long, long way. That's funny. It is far better than Windows. Still has areas of improvement. It still gets confused a little times, when, especially when you're trying to switch hardware, but that's very infrequent. It's not often. Now, once you start getting into, you know, soundboards and a bunch of like external stuff, look at something like Jack because its whole purpose in life is to manage and mess with that stuff. Pulse is meant for general usage. And for general usage on the day-to-day -day desktop, I think it runs really, really well. Like I said, I came late to the Linux game. So by the time I got here, Pulse Audio was really good, right? It's what everybody was pretty much using at the time for day-to-day -day audio stuff. And while yes, there are some times, especially when I first got started, that I needed to figure out how different things were named right 
when I had multiple screens or a TV that was connected as a screen at one point in time, sometimes making sure that it stayed on the input I wanted to in the very beginning, what, five years ago, there was still some flakiness there, but I haven't had that issue in years. I have much appreciated where Pulse has developed into, especially right now. I know a lot of people are hoping for, uh, was it Pipewire, I believe? It's like the next iteration of like a sound system for- Yeah, I think it's Pipewire. For Linux. Till then, right now, Pulse has been a, done a good job handling the core mess that is underneath it. I'm not going to lie. The actual sound, sound, sound subsystem underneath Linux is a mess. I mean, you have also, you have open sound system, you have, you know, Jack, you have, (laughs) there's a bunch underneath it, but it does a really good job in handling that stuff. OSS doesn't exist anymore. Also is the hardware level layer essentially for all sound in Linux. And the issue with Pulse has been that latency between a Pulse service talking to the hardware layer is where the problem exists. And I think somehow Jack handles that more better. Or It's because it's directing the right pipes to the right place directly. I, th- I believe it. like that's a very broad way of saying it. Instead of having more cords to make it go to where it needs to, it has less. So it's a cleaner pipeline. Yeah, I don't know the details. I just know it is cleaner somehow. One of the other things I really enjoy about Linux maybe the open source world. Little things like if you play around with electronics or you like to fix things or you have a, you like to make and do anything, it caters to you so well. Access to the Arduino development environment. If you want to like do your own circuits, like build your own circuits, this thing called Fritzing. There's another one like KiCad. You can build these electronic circuits and optimize things so very easily in Linux. And you don't have to go out and search for the EXE to install it. It's just right there in your package manager. The ability just to have access so easily to this breadth of software that helps you, if you're into these sorts of things, create all kinds of weirdness or whatever. I'm just so grateful for that. Or another thing too is the periodic table. So right now I'm teaching my kids about the periodic table. We're just gone over the first four elements so far. How easy it was just for me to get an application that shows all kinds of information on the periodic chart. So I can actually show them what the element looks like, or the atom looks like, I should say, and all the different little bits of information about it. And they can actually visually see it literally a click away. And I have access to all the stuff that's already been quality assured and everything for my Linux distribution. I just, I'm so grateful for that because I was trying to help another parent out with a periodic table. I'm like, oh, we'll just use, well, no, you can't use that. I guess if you Google search for something, you might be able to find it. You know, maybe there's some something out there. I forget so often how easy my life is because of Linux. It has made being able to do the things that I want to do so much easier. That's another thing that I think we don't think about very often. I would say that really ties into having the repos, right? You don't realize just how awesome those repos are on the day-to-day, how you have access to applications through your repo where you're not constantly worried about, oh my gosh, is this application going to be okay from this really sketchy website? It's the only place that I can find this thing. Is this actually a tool? Or are you going to be turned into a tool? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And I have to agree with you there. I know I've mentioned this story on the show before, but trying to get a Steam game to work. It was an older Steam game that was made for Windows to work on Windows. We were running into some issues and there was a dependency that was missing. Trying to find that dependency was such a horrible nightmare. And I gave up and I told my daughter, well, we're just not going to do it from here because the only places that I can find this dependency that it needs is this really sketchy website and I don't trust it enough to go ahead and install it to use it for this game. 
it makes me so thankful for the fact that if there's a dependency that I need to run something like um, MultiMC, the Minecraft application that my kids use, if I need another version of Java, all I have to do is go to the repo and get the version of Java that I need to run the version of Minecraft that they want to use. I don't have to go searching the internet hoping that I can find one that may or may not have malware in it. That's true. You know, they talk about dependency issues in Linux, but until you have DLL issues in Windows, you just haven't lived. Well, I have lived. I've lived through it. This episode of DLN Extend is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentications such as a master password and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. There are many reasons why I chose Bitwarden as my personal password manager. One of those reasons, it is 100% open source. You can also self-host your Bitwarden instance. They also offer security audits to make sure your passwords are as secure as they can possibly be. Go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. They offer an, a premium account for just $10 per year. What do you get with that premium account? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, or Duo, Vault Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage and Generation, Priority Customer Support. Make the smart move like many of the community have and go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. If you're like me though, you'll want that premium account for just $10 per year to support this amazing open source software. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of DLN Extend. Okay, Matt, so you have been working on this Operation Backlog. Maybe I said it right. What game have you dove into that you've had for who knows how long and are now just getting to? This particular game that I've had for many, many, many years. And honestly, I only realized I had it when I was going through, I think it was my humble bundle on use keys. Oh, hey. I don't think I've actually activated that game. Nope. So for those that don't know, I have about 400 unactivated keys on Humble Bundle, by the way. Wow. That's only one website. That's not counting Fanatical, Gala, and a few others. So the game I have is actually one, Nate, you might like because it's actually more of a 2D side scroller. I'm listening. It's... 3D graphics on a 2D plane, so it's like a 2.5D. It is actually called Strider, which is a remake of a original game from Capcom. Hmm. If you have played games like Mark of the Ninja, it's got elements of that. It has got elements of probably some of the Mega Man games. There's a verticality to it. There's you know ways you can climb up walls. You can. It's not just a straightforward, straightforward movement side scroller. So it, it's been fun to play because that 3D element adds a different context layer to the game that it has so like the character designs from time to time uh you know so you're on a 2d plane with a 3d character the camera will change and shift with 
the action. So like when a main enemy comes up, like the camera will pan and shift to like a 3D effect, but it does it within the actual game as opposed to like, oh, here's a random cutscene that does it. So it's this kind of cool little way of designing a game. It's a fast, fluid game. It's not a long game, but it's definitely a game that if you like side scrollers and if you like games like Mark of the Ninja and those type of games, it'll definitely be up your alley. Or if you're a fan of the old Metroidvania type games, you know, Castlevania, Metroid type games. I am a huge fan of those. Well, this might be a game you want to play because think Shinobi, but with a 2.5D modern graphical look. And that's pretty much what you got. I'm still stuck on this idea that you have all these keys, places that I have no idea even what they are. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a future episode. I kind of have this feeling that you could do this backlog for years and still never get through all of your games. There's actually a website, and I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. It gives you an idea of how long it'll actually take to complete your Steam collection. Just my Steam collection. I would have to play games 24-7 for three years. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That's just for your Steam collection? That's literally just Steam. That doesn't count EA Origin. That doesn't count Uplay. That doesn't count GOG. That's just PC. Then for anybody who knows me, I have a bunch of other games sitting on a shelf probably three quarters of those aren't touched. I would need a minimum, I'm guessing probably five years, 24 seven of video games to actually complete them all. Well, I should probably kind of do the same thing you're doing. I have all these Atari 2600 games that I haven't touched in years. I should probably crack those out and start playing those. You should. It's great for the kids <laughs> to play some of those older games. Well, they do, and they like them. Adventure is a favorite. I'm like, Zelda kind of came from that. I still say Zork is a better game, Nate. Better than what? But I'm not arguing with you. Just in that RPG feel. There's actually a lot of those uh, Scum VM games that I do enjoy very much. And if you ever played like Space Quest, Police Quest, King's Quest, mm-hmm. those are good games. I I really enjoyed those a lot. So, Nate, what's on your plate? I think we talked about last week. I wrote about this dementia-friendly Arduino-powered media player that I was looking at online. I think, you know, when do you miss that? And I have since purchased all the parts I need to start building this dementia-friendly Arduino-powered media player. So I have the uh, rotary encoder that I need. I have this thing called a DF player. I can take an SD card, a micro SD card, and then process the MP3s and then also output the sound to uh, a speaker. I have the Arduino boards, of course, and a little breadboard do experimentation on. So I'm going to be putting this thing together here. I'm hoping this week, uh, assuming I have time, so I can give this to my mom because she still plays with CDs. And far be it for me to tell my mom she shouldn't be using CDs because I do like the older technology. However, she's also shaky and older. And so the changing of the CDs is a bit of a challenge for her. So the idea is I'll put all of her, I'll rip all of her CDs and put them on this SD card and organize it by each CD in its own folder, put it on on the SD card. And she can then go through and select which CD she wants just by turning a knob on it, a little rotary knob. That's what the encoder's for. And so she can go flip between those and then be able to push to start and stop the CD as well, the music, I should say, as well. It's a little bit of a modification from the original, what I read, because I want to have this push to start and stop. Don't actually have a text sheet on this rotary encoder right now, so I'm not really sure which pins do what activity, but I'll figure it out. Don't worry. But yeah, that's, I'm putting that together. I'm kind of excited. It'll all be open source. Probably upload or whatever that stuff to, to my GitHub at some point in time whenever I get it done. That is really awesome. I love the idea of that project. I have family members, most of them not here anymore, that have suffered with either dementia or Alzheimer's, that kind of thing. Aside from those conditions, just you know having the shakes. And I completely understand what you're talking about with having the shaky hands and making it harder to get the CDs in and out. I love the idea of this 
project. I can't wait to see how it comes together and how much your mom enjoys it when you have it finished. The only hang up I have right now is a box to put it in. I, I still have to work out that little tidbit. You know, if I could find like an old radio, that'd be ideal. Oh, that would be so cool. We'll see what I can come up with. So Wendy, what exciting camera related things have you got going on? I am really excited about the new update for Darktable. This isn't a big update. It's just a point release. Point releases are still awesome. The 3.4 update had some really big changes into it. So the point one release, we're doing some bug fixes. They have added some improvements to the white balance settings on a couple Fuji cameras and Olympus really awesome stuff. Even better is when people help out on the noise level side and there's a bunch of different cameras that got updated noise profiles. What do these updated noise profiles do? Well, if you go into Darktable, you have specific settings for the noise level on cameras. They know that through samples of however many Canon ESOs, 1500Ds, right? They know that on 200 ISO, it has about this quantity of noise level. This is where it's showing up on the sensor and it's able to go in and target that and clean it up a lot neater so you don't have so much blurring. It keeps your sharpness while also helping to get rid of the noise. I absolutely love it when we're able to see upgraded noise profiles. Here is some of the big stuff that happens in this updated release. There was 100 commits to Darktable, 25 pull requests, closure of 18 issues, and even better, 14 language translations that have come to this version of Darktable. That means more and more people have access to this super awesome open source photo editing software. Keep up the excellent work, guys. It's looking great. Well, that's very cool. No small number of things that they've done. Explain for me who's you know, a little bit, let's say, camera challenged. Oh, I have one. What do you mean by noise and noise profiles? Let's jump back for just a second and define what ISO is. It is the sensitivity of the sensor to light. The base ISO on most cameras is 100. Some have a base of 50, but that's not very normal. When you go up on that, when you take your ISO level up, it is making the sensor more and more sensitive to light. The way a sensor works, the photons from the sun will hit that sensor. And depending on the amount of photons that hit that pixel of the sensor determines what the charges that charge determines how light or dark that pixel will be within your image. If you're cranking up that sensitivity, you're getting more electrical noise, more electrical feedback in it, and it'll make your image more grainy. That is the digital noise or the noise you're getting within your image. Now, if you have a noise profile for a specific camera, it is a noise profile for that specific sensor. So how much digital noise feedback is it getting at this sensitivity of the sensor? And it definitely increases the more you increase your ISO. One of the wonderful things about the advanced technology in cameras is they've gotten better and better at handling that disruption of cranking up that signal. But if you have a dedicated noise profile for your camera sensor, when you go in to do the raw editing, it can help clean up 
that fuzziness, that graininess, but still help keep a sharper image in the end. Great for low light photography. So someone is able to actually figure out an algorithm to compensate for that noise on those specific cameras. Yes, absolutely. And this is one That's of the amazing. places where you help out open source projects like Darktable and they say, hey, you know, we need noise profiles for this camera at these ISOs. And if you have that camera, please go ahead and help out. Send in the information they need because all it does is makes Darktable better for everybody else. It makes your images cleaner in the end. The more data that they have to calculate these algorithms, the better it is for the project altogether. And how would one get the noise profile of their camera? On Darktable's website, they have specific instructions. I'll go ahead and drop that in the show notes. That's very interesting. They just have to take the time to... I wonder if they have it for my camera. I would have no problem doing that with my camera. Not that I know what I'm doing, but uh, but you know, why not? Thank you, everyone. We'd love to continue this discussion with you on Telegram, Discourse, Mumble, or Discord. Visit the DLN website for information on how to connect to our social channels, our shows, and the creators at destinationlinux.network. For more information on me, you can go to cubiclenate.com. Links to my regular written blatherings, podcast, and YouTube can be found there. And you can find my random ramblings on Twitter at MattDLN. My social media is still a dumpster fire. I will get back to you when all of that is figured out. As always, thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another fantastic episode of DLN Extend. Until then, have a great week, everyone. 